Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I have the pleasure to have with me today Professor Laura Gowing, to, uh, to talk all about her book titled Ingenious Trade, Women and Work in 17th Century London, published by Cambridge University Press. This book um, is really helpful, is really illuminating, really, to help us understand the young women who came to London in the late 17th century to earn their own living um, in a number of different trades, often related to needlework, um, seamstressing, all sorts of things in that vein, but not just that. Um, The book takes us through kind of the whole life cycle, really, of these young women coming to London, kind of what happens to them, the many different things that can happen to them, and helps us understand um, this bit of history that previously we've maybe had less knowledge and awareness of. So, Laura, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us to tell us all about your book. Thanks for having me. Before we dive into the book itself, though, would you mind introducing yourself a bit and explaining sort of how you came to write this? Sure. So I'm professor in early modern history at King's College London, and I've worked for my whole career on early modern women's history for a period in which that history has basically been transformed. We know so much more now than we did 30 years ago. Um, And that's largely to do with the expansion of access to source material and the sort of ingenious work that feminist historians and social historians have done on making source material for women's history accessible. So what I'm really interested in is the lives, the experiences, the cultures of largely ordinary women, the kind of women who left almost no records in their own voice or in their own hand. So my work's really been about reconstructing a world. And this project is quite different for me because it has much more of an economic focus, but it, all, it and it doing that it picks up on the really important recent work that's been done by feminist historians to expand our knowledge of the world of pre-industrial gender and work all the way across Europe. Well what I really wanted to do was examine the cultural and the social side of the sort of the psychic and social side of labour. What was it like to work as an early modern woman and how might it have changed what it meant to be a girl or to be a woman? And I I start. I always start off. Must always start off working on legal records, and so the narratives at the heart of this book came from a bunch of legal records that I first encountered in the old Corporation of London archive, which was a glorious place in the early nineteen nineties. And I came back to them more recently, and have records of the Mayor's Court of Early Modern London, which dealt with equity issues and, amongst much else, disputes between apprentices and their mistresses and their masters, and the process of sorting out those disputes about who owed who, who much money, how much money for the repayment of their premiums when things went wrong. They went into an enormous amount of detail about their domestic lives, their working lives and expectations on both sides. So that was sort of the starting point. Hmm. So many fascinating books come out of great archives. Um, And given the rich archival material in the book, it makes a lot of sense that that would be a starting point. Staying big picture for a moment before we get into some of those details, you talk about in the book that apprenticeship for girls was in some ways a, quote, potentially radical business. Why? Well, well, part of what I mean by that is what it, how it seems to us now. Anybody who's done any work on women's history has probably been told that women's work was and is often 
particularly in the park, particularly in the pre-industrial past, makeshift, poorly paid, informal. It fits in around everything else. And that picture is really important. And that insight is um, a crucial aspect of reinterpretations of economic history. But what we see here is a different side of a story in which women have an access to formal, organised work, which is arranged by contracts, which are quite difficult to break, not impossible, but it means they're incorporated into a much more formal and organised type of work. And I think that is radical how we understand the role of women, the place of women in the 17th century as well. It means that their relationship to the world of work is much more complicated than to say men have occupations and women do marginal work. It's long been clear that that's a gross, a gross oversimplification. So that expands that aspect of it. It's also, it's quite radical to see these forms. Lots of the, the contracts for apprenticeship are arranged, are, are made on, often on pre-printed forms. And young women and their mistresses are given these forms printed by city, by, um, by city stationers in which they have to fill in their names and their parents' names and sign them or leave some kind of mark on them. And to have forms which are a contract of employment, which are mostly set up for boys, to have them altered as they are to fit in girls, you really get a sense of girls being being inserted and woven into the institutional structures of work. The guilds in which lots of in, in which lots of apprentices may there their place have been traditionally and rightly understood as absolutely masculine and male focused and oriented around masculine artisanal identity but there was a place for women in them increasingly in the late 16th and early 17th century so let's get into kind of who these women who these girls are how and why did girls become apprentice apprentices what kinds of girls generally became apprentices well, they become apprentices in all sorts of ways. When I first started working on this, I thought they'd all have contracts and I'd be able to find them somehow. Well, not only some of them do have contracts, some have contracts which we can't find. Some of them are contracted on scrappy bits of paper. Lots of them are contracted on proper printed indentures, but we don't have them anymore. There's some really nice bits of the archive which involve little letters written by people saying, here's this girl, she's lost her indenture, she can't prove she was an apprentice, but she was apprentice, and can you let her into the guild? So it involves family arrangements, particularly, and also arrangements made by parishes. So the range of girls who are being apprenticed covers from... Girls who are dependent on parishes, whose families or who they are paupers, being apprenticed through the parish in order to give them occupations, right up to girls who are paying up to £50 to be put into um, expensive, profitable seamstress apprenticeships in the elite shops in the West End and the city. So it's really a huge range of arms. One of the things I thought was most interesting about it is a way in which apprenticeship becomes an institution which really draws in a lot of women, not just as apprentices, but also as mistresses. And what sorts of backgrounds did the girls tend to come from? In London, a lot of them are, particularly in, in the sort of beginning of a period I'm working on of the 1640s, a lot of them are the daughters of London artisans. Many of them are daughters of clergy. And I think a fair number, probably the daughters of 
clergy who have been sort of dislocated in the religious upsets post civil wars. And some of them are the daughters of gentry, probably about one in three of those who are apprenticed into the London livery companies um, have a father who is described at least as a gentleman. And one of the most interesting things I found was entries in men's wills about making sure their daughters or their granddaughters or their nieces were apprenticed, as it were, from people inside London and from in the provinces, as a way of making sure that they had a security in their life, and often as a way of compensating for their parents' failure to um, protect them or to ensure that they were married or to ensure that they, that they had an occupation. So it's it's, it's very much as a root of um, security. Mm. And how many girls are we talking about in this period? And to what extent do these numbers change over this time? Well, it's always difficult to count anything before 1700. And the record keeping of girls in guilds is particularly problematic because it seems actually a relatively small proportion of the girls who were apprenticed into city companies were actually enrolled in those city companies. So they have apprentices in the companies, but they're not actually in the company lists. M- many fewer of the girls are on the company lists than the boys are. And we only know that they had those apprenticeships by finding the documentation somewhere else. But what happens is it, but what, what what we can see is a sort of sense of what proportion of overall apprentices there might be. So it seemed to be between about two percent of the apprentices in a guild up to about ten percent. Um, by the sixteen eighties, we might be seeing something like two hundred girls a year being apprenticed within the city of London, but it's really guesswork. What is what is more clear is that there are increases, particularly in the livery companies around the from the 1640s onwards. So through the late 17th century, those numbers are increasing. Hmm. Which is helpful. And as you said, of course, there's the caveat of the difficulty of counting anything. Um, but we do have some information, uh, not just of numbers, but kind of where, what sorts of work they're apprenticing into. What sectors did the female apprentices go into? And did this change over time? One of the reasons why girls can be apprenticed in the City of London and why women can be mistresses is as a custom in London, the custom of London, which allows anybody to who is a member of a guild to practice any trade. They don't have to practice the name of a guild. So we have seamstresses practicing their trades in the Barber Surgeons Guild, the Cloth Workers Guild, and all sorts of other guilds. So it's often difficult to tell what they're actually doing. They might well be listed under one trade because that's the name of the guild, and it turns out that they're doing needlework. The Painter Stainers Guild is quite an interesting example. And here, it's not really clear. The girls who are apprenticed into the Painter Stainers, their mistresses seem to have seamstresses shops, but the husbands of those mistresses are often painters. You don't actually know what those girls are doing and who, in fact, they are working with. And there's probably possibly at least some kind of overlap between the portrait painting and the drawing and the needlework um, if the shops are in, 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 in the same place. But broadly, as you said at the very beginning, the textile sector is enormous. Now, the textile sector is enormous in early modern London anyway. It is really, it's the, it's the, it's the centre of work. That's what everybody's doing. But what we get from looking at apprenticeships is a sense of 
how important girls and women are within that world. But ones that aren't, and of course the other thing that happens is that roles within the textile sector get diversified over a period of the 17th century as fashion gets fiddlier and more complicated, um, as there's more accessories and girls are often put to work on making accessories, often things made of lace. For girls that aren't in the textile trade, typically are... um, the most popular thing seems to be pastry making. That comes up a few times. Sometimes wig making, um, quite a lot working in shoes. And there's also pin makers who are a more sort of plebeian. It seems to be a more plebeian occupation that's appearing. They're actually working in workshops in a much more um, proto-industrial type of organisation. Mm very interesting to hear about that range and kind of which things do conform to expectations we might have and which don't. You've mentioned obviously mistresses a few times um, and this book is not just about the girls who are apprentices but also kind of what could what they could grow into what the other women are involved in this. So who were the exchange women? It's such a great name isn't it? It is it's very evocative. Yeah it's it's unusual for female occupations to have names in the in this period. In, in the medieval period, you have silk women. In the 17th century, you have exchange women. It was a really nice phrase that is used in the archives of the Royal Exchange, which is where they are. She was bred in the exchange, which kind of means she's been trained as a seamstress, she's had a shop in the exchange, and she'd like to have another shop in the exchange, please, please give me my shop. So exchange women hold stalls, usually in the Royal Exchange, which is in the City of London. There's about four um, exchanges in London in this period, some in the city and some in the West End. And in the in Royal Exchange, of course, downstairs is where the work with stocks, merchants happen. But upstairs in the upper galleries, as in the exchange in Holland, um, there is a whole row of shops, tiny, tiny shops in um, sort of lines, two um, concentric squares, basically. And you can walk from shop to shop. It's almost like a shopping mall. It's quite protected. It's very good for elite women who might not want to be traipsing up and down Cheapside. And it gives often gives a sort of sample of what bigger shops might have. I think goods are fairly expensive. Often people are buying on credit rather than actually paying there. There's a fair amount of shoplifting going on. There's a lot of bustle. It's very fashionable to be seen there. So exchange women have shops in most places. And there's lists of them in the in the land tax records. It gives us a wonderful sight of um, mistress after mistress has their names in the list of the um, shop records. So you can actually see who owns which shop or who rents which shop next to who. Very satisfying, honestly, to read about that in the archive, (laughs) that that exists in the archive. And I was just like, oh, that must have been really fun to kind of open that box or open that file. Um, Or see it in digital format. Well, okay, slightly less exciting. It's because you see, you can actually, it's, it's rare in property records that you see a little bunch of entries that are like 50% women. And you recognise the women and you, and you realise that some of them are related to each other because you've seen them somewhere else. So there's some nice networks between the mistresses and that's a very interesting insight into how networking seems to function. So in fact, that's one of the things that, um, there, I mean, 
and everything we've talked about so far and everything we will talk about um i have to point listeners to the book itself for so many fabulous details about all of this if you want to know about particular exchange women and particular networks and how they go together and um, the book really does have all of that so if any of this sounds intriguing i would recommend the book itself for kind of doing it properly rather than the highlights version we're doing now um but speaking of those networks as you said, some of them are related to each other. Um, and obviously, some of that is through marriage. I knew kind of coming into this book that surely marriage would have some impact on women's work as mistresses. But I honestly had no idea kind of what that impact would be and learnt loads from reading about this. So could you tell us how marital status impacted the shape and nature of women's work as mistresses? It's quite complicated to work out how marital status relates to women's work. I think it's partly because it doesn't have such an obvious impact as one might as one might expect. So, work of um, the work recently of Amy Erickson, in particular, has revealed the extent to which married women work separately from their husbands in London in this period, and that's probably true elsewhere too. They have completely, quite capable of having completely separate careers, both of them feeding into the household economy. So we need to rethink what the marital economy looks like. That said, there are certain um, characteristic features that I could see. And one of them is the way in which some people assume that once a woman who is already, already has a shop gets married, she won't be keeping it on. So that's one pattern. There's one woman in particular who takes on an apprentice, and then she, gets, um, she makes arrangements to get married and the apprentice's parents get concerned that she's not going to keep up the shop properly because she's married and say, is this really a going concern or not? Can and want her to, to prove that she's really going to trade her apprentice properly and have a big, busy shop rather than just keep it as a kind of side concern or let it die down. And they get dissatisfied with how much she's putting into the shop and take the apprentice away and she goes off somewhere else. So that's one possibility. But more often, actually, it seems that when women get married... They can keep their role as a mistress of apprentices on. They're still functioning that way. They can have they, they have a shop in their own name. They employ apprentices and they often use the apprentices um, premium to buy stock for the shop so they can make sure they've got enough in it. It looks like there are couples, artisanal couples in London in which the man is doing one business and the woman is doing another sometimes. And in other cases, they're both working broadly in the same area of shopkeeping, but a woman seems to be sort of running one shop with her apprentices and a man is perhaps, work, perhaps working somewhere else. So there's a real mix of um, effects. One of the things that I thought was surprising was the way in which childbirth, like having babies and rearing children, seemed to be woven in and out of, of, of taking apprentices. So some women really didn't seem to let it get in the way. They'd be they would be taking on an apprentice when they clearly were six or seven months pregnant and must have known they were going to give birth pretty quickly, but did not get in the way of taking on a girl that they were supposed to train and have her running the shop. On the other hand, apprentices' parents are pretty firm about not wanting them to do any childcare, like don't, don't end up holding a baby, don't do any rough work, you've got to be learning to sew. So they can't be depending on the labour, the, the domestic labour of the apprentices they've employed there's usually a servant around in 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 the house who can fill in and support in terms of childcare. so marriage and children doesn't necessarily 
interfere. But there's also a whole category of single women who tend to take more girls as apprentices than, than married women, women do and have a kind of longer, more consistent career where they train a girl, she goes on to take the freedom of London and become a mistress herself, she will train another one. So you can see these longer generations. Hmm. That that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'd love to pick up on something you mentioned earlier about kind of the guilds um, and how they are often assumed to be very sort of male dominated. And yet we see um, female apprentices and mistresses operating in some ways within the guild but also you talk about in the book in some ways in parallel to the system. Can you tell us about this sort of interaction in and around the guild? Yes. So the guild, so I'm using the term guilds interchangeably with city livery companies, as with the livery companies of City of London, like the worshipful companies are essentially guilds. The, they are traditionally, generally very excluding of women and women's work. So the weavers have a whole narrative about women trying to take over the work of men and make um, serious attempts to exclude women's work. Um, the broderers company do the, do the same thing. They're always trying to throw women out of workshops and make sure that they're not working where they shouldn't be. And yet at the same time, because of the custom of London, which means that once women are members of the guild, then they can they can do broadly any kind of work. They can't really prevent it happening. And also by the later 17th century, there's not any longer a huge um, inflow of, or there's not as much of an inflow of young male apprentices. And the guilds necessarily become a bit more open to girls at that point. They seem to become less troubled by the masculinity of their cohort and this insistence on masculine artisanal identity. And they can't really control who is working through the guilds quite as strongly as they did before, say, about 1640. So the nature of guilds themselves is is beginning to change. But while the the guilds do maintain, through the early 17th century, they maintain an insistence that we really don't know what to do with with girls. So the um, haberdashers have a meeting at which somebody comes and says, we can see this in the guild records after their dinner meeting, they say, we've we've got a girl who wants to come and be an apprentice and become free. Can she do that? We've never heard of such a thing. And everyone says, no, no, no. But then then the old master says, yes, it has happened and it can happen and it it is allowed. But there's clearly not a will to remember the fact that, yes, girls can be apprentice and they can have the rights that come with a completed apprenticeship. On the one hand, then, these girls use paperwork that is based on the guilds. I think the paperwork is one of the really interesting aspects of it. But on the other hand, they have to actually fiddle with that paperwork. They have to cross out everywhere it says he and write in she to suit them. They have to change for, they have to change the word master to the word mistress. And they also change the terms of the contract. So the contract for a traditional contract for apprenticeship in the city of London says that you have to be apprenticed for seven years before you can become free. Girls and their parents often get that change to be only a five-year contract um, just to make it a bit more flexible. And we also try to um, alter the rules that say if you get married, it breaks the contract. The other difference is that girls 
and women don't really get invited to or join networks based on the guilds, which is kind of a point of guilds. They don't go to feasts, they don't go to meetings. Rather, they, they make networks and connections with kin and friends, but run across the guilds and not they don't do it so much through the occupational groups. Um, so the guild identity doesn't seem to be as significant for them in terms of work, although I think it is significant in terms of, for example, access to charities and to almshouses and so on. Hmm. Really interesting combination there, um, as you said, of kind of what that relationship looks like. We've talked about sort of who the girls are, who the women are, um, what the bounds of the relationship and contract are. But I suppose we haven't really talked about the details of what is actually happening in this relationship um, between the apprentice and the mistress or master. What kinds of training were these female apprentices actually getting? So what kind of training are they getting? Apprenticeships are essentially arranged, well, if it's a battle, are they going to suit the employers or are they going to suit the apprentices? So in the early years, there's a lot of menial work. You want to put your apprentice to work for you as much as possible before they start, start trying to get away. So sometimes they're put to doing work around the house. They learn to keep the shop. It's quite quite late on in their training, they start to be allowed to give change or to decide who can get credit or to haggle over prices in the shops. They do a lot of running errands, but most of all, they learn how to sew. They learn all kinds of sewing with fine gradations of different kinds of plain and fine work. They learn how to starch, um, they learn how to launder. Some of them end up then going to people's houses and coming back again, doing, doing the laundry work on clothes there. One girl is so difficult and grumpy about being a, a seamstress that she's sent to be trained outside the house. Her mistress sends her somewhere else out to another gentlewoman to learn to sew. And so she's been paid to train her, but she pays someone else to undertake the actual training. There's no mention of reading and writing. And with in, in most of the um, discussions of apprenticeship and it seems that most of the girls being apprenticed to the city of london guilds particularly the wealthier ones are already literate that part of their education has already happened poorer girls do sometimes have reading and writing included in their indentures and for other girls particularly parish apprentices housewifery is a key indicator um more complicated than it sounds it covers a wide range of skills including knitting and brewing and some apprenticeships are much more technical, where what girls are being taught to do is, for example, lace making, working with gold and silver wire. It's hard to tell what happens on a day-to-day -day basis in the actual workshops or in the actual houses. One of the distinctive features of seamstress work is it's not really trapped in one particular workshop, particularly with women who have shops in the Royal Ex Exchange. This is not a household or a domestic apprenticeship in the traditional sense the house and the shop are often in separate places and so the girls are moving around quite a lot they're out on the streets moving between home and the royal exchange and perhaps another shop so it's sort of less um contained in that in that way in their social reigns their so, so, social lives are rather more extensive in some of the disputes between mistresses and apprentices there's a mention of violent discipline between the mistress and the 
apprentice. So in, and in the worst cases, this ends up in murder. So there's a couple of murder cases in the Old Bailey in the late 17th century where a mistress is convicted of killing her apprentice by correcting her too hard because she wouldn't work properly. It's always, supposed it's always about whether or not she'd done the work. And other apprentices refer to being beat, hit with a pair of scissors or given a slap across the face when she wouldn't work hard enough. The mistresses and their friends are quite happy to, to say that that's what they did in order to make the apprentices work. Mm. And this gets to um, something you mentioned a little bit uh, as a kind of one of the things that made you interested in this topic is the idea not just of kind of, okay, well, who's doing what where professionally, but also kind of what does it mean to be a girl? What does it mean to be a woman in this sort of context? And I think these behavioral aspects, and obviously you talk about them more in the book, um, shows that the apprenticeship period was not just about learning technical professional skills, even if we just imagine the idea of kind of walking through bustling London from wherever you're living to the shop. There's a lot else going on here at quite a formative age of adolescence and early adulthood. Can you tell us about kind of this aspect of apprenticeship? Yeah, that's a really important point. So thanks for raising it. I I was I was quite focused for quite a long time working on this on the fact this is about women's work. And it took me a while to realise actually what, what, what I was also looking at was girlhood and adolescence. And I was seeing girls being trained into the beginnings of their work lives. And because most most of the girls in apprenticeships are between 11 and 16, typically around 14, but a couple as young as nine, they've been apprenticed very young. They're absolutely in the age of, I might say, the formation of gender roles. And they're learning about what it means to become a woman. There's a real... Um, interesting point about girlhood and womanhood in early modern society in that marriage is still so late marriage is generally comes if it comes in the mid-20s about a quarter or a fifth of the population aren't married by the time they're 45 so the large percentage of, of single women and commonly women like men work when they're young before they marry for sort of five to ten years very independently now of course men go on from that to become masters or they hope they 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 do whereas women go on from that to become wives of course some of them actually become mistresses of their own businesses as well so there's a considerably greater level of equality between young women and young men than is supposedly between husbands and wives later in life. And that transition from a relatively independent adolescence to a supposedly more um, hierarchical wifehood is, is an interesting one. But what I also thought was fascinating was the amount of conflict of course these are cases the court cases that I looked at are specifically about conflict obviously I was only going to find conflict but the nature of that conflict was interesting the court cases naturally mostly talk about problems that fall into violations of the apprenticeship contract so it's all about obedience and about doing what you're told and about um, what happens in the actual workshop but it does also talk a bit about social life and going outside when you haven't been told to. There's a lot about talking too much, talking back, being rude to your mistress. Um, and an enormous amount, really, in a couple of cases, particularly about refusing to have your hair combed, um, wearing your clothes out, wearing your best clothes in, in a workshop when you shouldn't have, or not having enough good clothes, not looking the right way that you should when you're 
in the workshop. So there's a kind of relationship to work which is um, which draws on affect and appearance as well as or as much as the actual labour because of course it's clothes and fashion that are working on. They're standing in shops selling goods that your fashionable people are coming, fashionable people are coming to look at. So this formative moment for them. Is really interesting, particularly I think for girls who come from rural households or households from small towns outside London, um, from gentry families or from clerical families. They're coming to London, living in houses of merchants with mirrors and paintings and striped hangings on the walls and embroidered rugs. It's possibly quite a different world that they're moving into and their relationship with other members of the household, like the other servants and and apprentices they might share beds or rooms with and the mistresses they work with can be very intense. Hmm. I can definitely imagine all manner of soap operas being created depicting this exact period. Um, For anyone listening who's looking for some sort of script or screenplay, um, I think there's probably a lot of material here. Um, I'd love to ask you, I suppose, penultimately about something you've mentioned a few times and you've talked about it a little bit, I know, but it's absolutely fascinating. And I think a lot more complex than we might sort of think of on an initial level. And so I'd love to get your expert opinion on it, given, um, how clearly you explain it in the book, being a free woman. That's not a sort of nice, like, yay, you're happy and free. Like, that meant a specific thing in this context, a specific legal thing. And it isn't the same as being a free man in London, necessarily. What did it mean to be a free woman? And what were some of the kind of, well, many more than I expected, paths to achieve this? Yeah, thanks for raising that. So the freedom of London is a specific kind of identity that you can have in London. It means that you're a citizen. It's really not very clear though, but if you're a free woman, you're a citizen in the same way as a man. And in many ways, it's clear that you're not. You don't have the same kind of rights to um, take part in electoral processes um, or to stand for office as free men do. But the freedom essentially means that you're a member of a city company and a member of the city itself and you have the right to trade independently within the city walls under your own name if you don't have that then you shouldn't be trading and sometimes you get people um trying to stop those who don't have the freedom and say no you can't hold this stall because you haven't got the freedom and that certainly happens to some women so it's something they need in order to run businesses in their own name and sometimes women go into partnership with other women to ensure that they've got somebody who's got the freedom to cover them so one of the way, main ways of getting the freedom through the period is to be an apprentice, to complete your apprenticeship and then take the freedom. Men and women both do this, but women do it much less frequently than men. They're, they're apprenticed less frequently, of course, and at the end of their apprenticeships, they don't take up the freedom as often as men do, although they sometimes do. One girl, for example, says that she didn't keep her paperwork, she didn't have the right kind of contract, and so she can't claim her freedom because her friends, who are the other adults who helped put her into the apprenticeship, thought that she was a gentlewoman and she wouldn't need the freedom. However, you know, as time passed, turned out she did need to run a shop herself. She wanted to run a shop and she needed to prove that she had the apprenticeship in order to do so. So the best sources for this are the petitions from older women coming back and saying, actually, I want to have a shop and I was definitely, 
I definitely have got a right to the freedom and here's the evidence that I've got. I had an apprenticeship or whatever. The other way of becoming free is through um, patrimonial right. So if your father, and this is true for women and men, if your father had the freedom of London, you could inherit it from them. And girls simply have to come and, and, and claim that in the same way as boys. But the distinctive feature of a freedom for girls and women, it's not just that it doesn't give them quite the same rights, but it's also that they can lose it. It seems to be surprisingly fragile. So men who've got the freedom under the custom of London can marry women and they can share that freedom with them. Women aren't meant to be able to do that. In fact, when they marry, they're supposed to lose their right to freedom unless they've married a man who is already free. So all that work on gaining the apprenticeship, you might lose it. If you marry, not everyone sticks to these rules and some women seem to be able to pass on their rights of freedom to the men that they have married. So as with so many customary rules, it's a bit negotiable. But generally, the system says that a woman who is free marries an unfree man. She loses her freedom. She can't carry it on like that. So um, matrimony basically covers everything else, which is very much part of the English system of coverture, which makes marriage Um, a very strict kind of property arrangement in in this period, much stricter than in the rest of Europe and means that married women's legal identity as a wife makes them very much subordinate to the legal identity of their husbands. So freedom for women is much more tenuous than it is for men. And this is why I think I found the kind of discussion we had a bit earlier about exchange women and mistresses and that you didn't have to be married to be a mistress and Sometimes you could be married and have like a completely separate business operation than your husband is really interesting. I think helpfully complicates our understanding, even just of legal history, not to, you know, and of course, all the other kinds of history that you're intervening in. Um, So I think perhaps a great way to kind of conclude our highlights tour with just that um, awareness of how many contributions the book is making. However, before I let you go, I'd love to ask, is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to share with our listeners? I'm in the very early stages of what I'm doing next, but broadly it's a project that's about relationship between law and evidence and women's bodies and legal authority. Um, So how bodies function as legal proof and the kind of legal authority that women have. So still on the law, basically, but a different aspect of it. Well, I'm sure it'll be absolutely fascinating because this book really was um, a reminder reminder of the title to uh, listeners, Ingenious Trade, Women and Work in 17th Century London, published by Cambridge University Press. Professor, I really cannot thank you enough for sharing your time and expertise with us. Oh, thank you, Miranda. It's such a pleasure to talk with you.